as we enter the the latter part of our thirties, <laughs> it's like we have this wisdom where the meaning in life changes. But it's cool that we have all these moments we can archive and stories we can tell and sh- and like this podcast will live on the permacast which is hosted it's a network hosted on our weave which means people will be able to find it in hundreds of years when we're gone you know let's talk about this actually because something we haven't mentioned is i am a fanatic about um storing things like i keep so when when andrew and i were on tour i like anytime i could i took lots of pictures and i have i never delete a picture um i'm i'm kind of like ocd about that i just want to keep all my photos it's because i have a pretty bad memory um and so i don't ever want to lose any of these things and as long as i can remember i've always had like a hard drive that i'm storing things on and, and i've always worried about that and you know i'm constantly trying to figure out how can i keep this stuff in existence for not just me, but for when my kids are around and like their kids and, you know, and remember when we used to have to burn CDs. Um, and then the CDs won't, won't play. Some of them won't play anymore. The like paint flake, flakes off in the back. And exactly. So you're telling me you're looking for a solution for permanent storage. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> you like that transition? That, but it's honest though. It's like really true. Like, yeah, that's what's like, I feel like a project like our weave and our drive is perfect for someone like you who's an archivist. Like you were showing me your hard drive earlier and I was showing you the pricing calculator. Like that's super cool because media can fail. Our bodies will can fail, but our memories and our stories like live on forever. Hey, that could be our tagline. Being able to back that up, back up all those photos privately or publicly is exciting, right? It's, it's, you don't have to, it's one less thing to worry about. It's like reaching that ability to unplug because you know your data is safe and, and, and censorship resistant and, and permanent. It's tight, man. It's really tight. It's, it's very relieving in a way to know that you don't, it's not something you have to be concerned about. You're tuned to the RCast, where we talk about the blockchain on the RCast. And how your data remains the R-Cast. Where R-Drive is the topic. Censorship resistant permanence. Yeah, we got it. Hi, kids. Do you like permanence? <laughs> Eminem reference. Uh, welcome to episode 17 of the R-Cast. This week, I'm talking to Demondric Jack, who's actually one of my best friends. We went to college together, and we made a lot of music together, toured a lot. Um, great guy. We get into that, but we talk about his work in blockchain education, his years at Stanford, what it was like producing the Grammy-nominated artists K-Flay and Jadena, and we also talk about the next steps towards the mass adoption of decentralized permanent storage. Inferno is still happening. You can check your status. Go to inferno.rdrive.io. So the top 50 uploaders, last week it was pretty high. If you upload that flavor, you get rewarded with our drive tokens and you don't want to miss out because there's a lot of exciting things happening. Uh, we are announcing ants and RNS this week, but I don't want to get too into that because we're still kind of laying it all out. So stay tuned to the R drive apps, Twitter account for all those updates. And of course we're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We have a YouTube channel. We're in Reddit. We're everywhere, bro. Uh, NFT week was great. NFT NYC was awesome. I really enjoyed the DAO NYC event. A lot of great speakers. We got to meet up with BT, 
who use our drive to upload his orbs project. We had a great lunch with him. Uh, the Moonbirds event at Daintree was awesome, and the Bee Friends event was cool too. So shout out to Anthony for rolling with me to all these events, and shout out to the R Drive community members who said what's up to us. We handed out pins. It was awesome. So let's get into it. This is my interview with Demondric Jack on the Rcast. <music> All right, friends, welcome to the Rcast. It is episode 17, and I'm here with a man who's had a very interesting long career, a good friend of mine, Demondric Jack. DJ, welcome to the Rcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure to be here. I've known you t- over 20 years, right? 22 years, almost? 2001. My goodness. I was visiting a friend. We both went to college together. I was visiting a friend. You just hung up your whiteboard. It said DJ's room. And I asked you if you were a DJ. And you said. Uh, I'm not a DJ, but my name's DJ and I love music. So then I gave you my CD of like these songs I recorded in high school. You gave me your CD, The Doctors of Music, that you record in San Antonio. And then eventually we were touring the world. Australia, Japan, England. Yeah, no. um, It was just like so... First, no, this had to be like the second week, maybe even the first week of school, right? Freshman year, I don't know anybody. Um, and yeah, I just put up my whiteboard, get a knock at the door, you know, the door's closed, but the door, the board says DJ's whiteboard, I get a knock at the door. What's up? In freshman year, everybody's like friendly and, you know, you're just open-minded. So um, I was like, hey, what's up? And, um, you know, like I thought maybe you knew me or, or you were looking for my roommate. Maybe that's what I thought. And then you asked me if I was dj and i said if i was a dj and i said no i'm not a dj but in my head i'm going i don't i have no idea where this conversation is headed and then i in that same conversation right you handed me your cds and you said um i'm going to be having practice for the band like you know if you want to come to the to the practice is this how you remember it no i think i brought you the cd later you brought the CD later i don't think i was walking around dorms with my cd that would have been insane but maybe i was Maybe I needed a permanent storage solution. <laughs> there you go. There you go. See, you could have just sent me to a URL and uh, instead of handing me burned CD. You gave me your email. Uh, for those who don't know, Andrew has a, an incredible memory, far better than mine. So, um, yes, I just remember being, this is, this is weird. And uh, I do remember listening to your music and going, this music is also weird, but I really like this guy. And I'm just going to say yes to go into practice. And then we went, to, I did practice like a week later. And then we played our first show at the coffee house a week after that. And it was just friendship ever since. So, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And then we just kept making music together. And when stuff started happening with the MC Lar stuff, you were in, always in between jobs or able to work remote or flexible your schedule. And we traveled so many different countries, man. I'm trying to think I was a like, flight attendant. Okay, so you got free miles anywhere we went in the world. (laughs) And then you were kind of the music director, like, and you'd always fall asleep in surprising places like Australia during a rehearsal of punk bands playing. You fell asleep. Yep, yep. Where else do you fall asleep, DJ? (laughs) Carnegie Hall is probably my favorite place that I've fallen asleep (laughs) moments before we were supposed to go on stage and perform. (laughs) Because you work so hard. Tell, tell me how you remember that, because I just remember being asleep and then being like vigorously, you know, shaken awake and being like, it's time to go on stage. But what what was in your mind? Meryl Streep was doing her speech. We are about to go on stage. 
and the the stage the stage manager was like where's where's your other perform where's the other performer i'm like i don't know and we ran all over and then we <laughs> ran upstairs and you were asleep in the dressing room and we had to go on in like three minutes i was like dj you're like oh i was just real tired sorry Yep. Sounds like me. Just being a flexible, open person who's open-minded to change, uh, very hardworking, very brilliant. You like, nothing was handed to you. You worked hard for all your breaks in your life. And I thought it would be awesome to have you on this podcast because you're someone who is always, I feel like has been an early adopter of technology and you were an early adopter in blockchain. Maybe not the first wave, but like, you were definitely an advocate of it. You knew you were into it before me. And I thought it'd be interesting to talk about your journey from producer, music science technology major to like the th- projects you're working on now. I thought that'd be tight. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go on that journey for sure. <laughs> you were born in Texas, San Antonio, Texas. The truth is about to come out. Wait, I always claim San Antonio, Texas, because I love San Antonio. However, I was born in Houston, Texas, lived there from zero to nine. I do not claim Houston because I had a miserable time as a child there because when you're a kid in Houston, all there is to do is sweat. Like you're just hot all the time. And so I just remember playing outside and only being able to do it for like 10 minutes and then having to run inside and get more Kool-Aid. Um, so that was my Texas, that was my like Houston experience. Then I got to San Antonio and just a, yeah, about, I was nine years old, much nicer place. I love now, now as an adult, I have to say Houston's pretty cool, I guess. I don't know. I don't go back there as much, but there's a lot of food. So I will say that. I love food. Um, you're like a gourmet. You always are curious about food. You're always curious about different cu- different cultures. Like that's something that being traveling the world, you're able to do all that and you still are. But but you don't travel as much as you did 20 years ago. 15 years no, ago. No, I'm a total homebody now. Um, so, but... Let's talk about the traveling thing for a second and how that came to be. So, yeah. in, you know, I grew up in Texas and I was there till I was 17. And then I left uh, at 17, 18. If you don't leave Texas at that point, you're never leaving. You're just going to be always in the, in the, in your neighborhood somewhere. Um, yeah. And so I was like, I put in an application um, for Stanford, not knowing not thinking that I would get in. And somehow I got the big envelope and I was like, I guess I'm going to Stanford. I actually had a roommate picked out at like a state school, you know, about 45 minutes away from where I live. So um, got to Stanford and met people from all over the world. Mm. And that's what really kind of lit the travel bug. I, I mean, I wanted to go to Stanford, not to go to California or anything. It was just because I thought I wanted to be an electrical engineer. And I picked up a US news magazine one day and I was like, well, what are the best schools for electrical engineering? You know, this is like when I'm 14 years old and Stanford was near the top. It was like number two. MIT was number one. Uh, But I later learned MIT was like, it felt like all work, no play. And Stanford felt like a good mix of both. MIT was your safety school. Yeah. (laughs) I do not think I could have got it. But you majored in music science and technology, which was cool because you had, you had for your units to graduate, you had to produce albums. You had to be in a studio, right? For certain hours. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we definitely took advantage of that. You did a lot of stuff with K-Flay. You did Jadena's and Chitty's music, right? And he went on to Grammy-nominated? Did he get Grammy-nominated? Oh, Jadena? Yeah, is doing very well. And Christine got Grammy-nominated. Like, all the magic touch of DJ in the studio, um, you know, 
I think there was just something in the water at that point in time. Like that, that era of Stanford was pre uh, everyone wanting to start a tech company. I mean, it was like, that was where the most, when the most popular major, I think at the time was like pre-med. So Stanford wasn't like super duper tech at that point. So there was still like a lot of people who were just there, I don't know, being creative. And I'm sure that's still the case, but it's, it was less, I felt money focused at the time. It was just like, well, and quite literally, the class under us was these Web2 monoliths, Kevin Systrom, who launched Instagram, and then Jack Conte launched Patreon. These people who were like one year younger than us who had these really cool creative ideas. And Kevin Kevin was a billionaire or was sold Instagram for a billion dollars. Like, that's pretty good use of your time. He was working at the radio station as the publicity co-director with me and had other projects he wanted to work on. That's that was like a smart, smart use of time. But like they're also the artists, right? Because Jack yeah. was an amazing musician. Kevin was a really good photographer and DJ, right? These artists who found ways to monetize their work. And I think something DJ about you is that you're always you've always been really good at collaborating with people. And that's given you this really interesting, long, very original career. Would you agree you're good at collaborating? Yeah, I mean, I like I honestly think I was put on this earth to help people. Like that's the only thing I really feel comfortable doing is either helping or learning. Um, otherwise I'm super introverted and I'm just, like I said, I'm a homebody. But if you, if you need my help or if I have an opportunity to learn something cool, I am just um, completely out of my shell at that point. So, you know, in college, there was a lot of having access to the studio meant there was a lot of opportunity to help people who wanted to get into the studio and who didn't have like the patience to sit down and learn how to use pro tools and all that. That was my jam. I mean, I, I loved being behind the computer and I, I yeah, yeah. I got to work with great people such as yourself. By the way. Hey, that's nice. Thank you, DJ. Well, and also in like the world-class studios in the, in the lab where MIDI was invented or perfected, like the t- access to the technology is really, really cool. And it's really interesting how like, um, uh, this whole idea of digital sovereignty, right? Which is like behind a lot of crypto. People talk about that. That was always the, the ethos of being able to independently put out the music we did, travel, and and do things without necessarily ever being signed to a, a, a label because we learned how to be self-sufficient. And I th- think that's a lot of the ethos of, of Web3 and crypto, which really inspires me and makes me like love my job every day. You know, like, would you feel, do you see a connection there or am I kind of reaching? Oh, no, no, no. It's, it was the, the democratization of like, um, pu- pu- uh, you're being able to get your music out there to people through the internet without having to go through the gatekeeper of a major label, you know? So what is it called? Like publicity or um, publishing? What is it called where you like put your music out? Um, I think that is called publishing. Yeah. Publishing your distri- distribution and publishing, right? Distribution. We- it was like the democratization of distribution. And the way to do it is also, we learned, you don't spend a ton on, on studio budget. You don't spend a ton on whatever. You like, you, you do think, you do a lot of ideas and you were always very good at helping me pick the best ideas. We'd be like, let's try everything. And every album, like pretty much, we'd always have a meeting, like what songs are working, what aren't. And as it's, that's like the engineer in you, man. So like you work for Southwest Airlines, you worked producing all these different artists and then you slowly started work like is that when you connected with fred and started working on the startup in a startup world or let's talk about that i your oh, IOT that's years? Right. oh that's a 
very, very simple like explanation for why I ended up doing that. So I'm very much a free, like I value freedom over security. You know, I, it's just, I always have, I love the idea of being able to do what I, what I love to do. And I can't really work in a corporate environment that is stifling for too long. Like I get unhappy. So it's just how I'm built. Um, so, so I, but I tend to not, as a result of that, I tend to not have a lot of money most of the time. So I, I've learned to live like very resourcefully. You know, one of my favorite experiences, like I lived in my car three different times in the Bay area, you know, rent is expensive. I had a Honda element. I was like, shoot, let me throw up some curtains in this bad boy, like find a nice place to park. And I, you know, it was great. And I would go to work as a flight attendant and have hotels and then come back and just sleep in the car for a few days and then go back to work. And I had a gym membership, but okay. I'm always trying to start something. I'm always trying to do what I love, but occasionally I run out of money. Now, when I was single, that was not a problem. I have a wonderful partner um, in my life now who does not like to see me run out of money. So what she said was, at the time I was um, working on a uh, a waffle and and ice cream business called Mr. Waffleton's. And it was, yes. So it was this idea that I had um, because I loved waffles and ice cream. And I was like, this should be a thing where you can just go to a store and get a waffle top from ice cream and be able to put all sorts of toppings on it. Well, anyway, trying to get that idea off the ground, like um, my partner, whose name is Allison, she said, you have, how about this? Let's compromise. I think she gave me four months or six months or something like that. I've been working on it for a while at that point already. We'd been testing your recipes, right? <laughs> You'd always be like, I've got a new batter recipe. Yeah. Yes. And by the way, I do have the best uh, waffle recipe, not to brag, but yeah. Um, so Allison gave me a, a very specific length of time. Well, we agreed to it. And I said, yeah, sh- I should be able to launch this business by then. You know, we'll we'll be rich within that amount of time. Uh, just kidding. I didn't say that. But I did think I would be able to get it off the ground. Turns out I was wrong. And to honor my, the, the agreement was if I couldn't do it within that amount of time, I had to go get a job, like a job that paid real money, like a stable job. And so I, it came down to the end. I didn't have Mr. Waffleton's ready to roll. And so I went and uh, I was on Reddit because um, I love Reddit and I was scrolling and I saw an ad that said make, I think it was like something like $80,000 a year in tech sales. And I was like, what is tech sales? Like, I've never liked the idea of going into sales, but um, I, I clicked on the ad. It was a tech sales boot camp. And I was like, okay. So I went to this and the boot camp didn't charge you unless you got a job. So I was like, well, that's, this is back in 2017, 20, yeah, 2017, I think 2016, 2017. So I did the boot camp. It was about a month long. It was great. It was called um, always hired and um, did that. Then I got a, I got a job in tech sales and the job happened to be at an IOT company and I loved it. The company's called particle. And I, I mean, I didn't know what IOT was before, like I started interviewing for them and it ended up being a really great time of being around a bunch of super smart people who were awesome. And I, I loved it. I'd never heard of IOT until you got that job. So I, I was just thinking about that. Like you were, you were kind of an early adopter with that too, right? I don't know. I, I think so. Um, well, I was like mid, uh, if you think about like the, what is it? The hype cycle it was probably like near the peak of the hype cycle or like a little bit before the the top but i certainly it took me a long time to really understand what it was and then when i finally got it i was like oh it's just like attaching 
the internet to different sensors so that it, you can read the sensors and control the, the actuators from anywhere in the world as long as you have an internet or cellular connection. I was like, oh, okay. So, oh, so, and uh, yeah. but I, it's, it took me a while to get there. <laughs> and then once you were there, like, you were there how many years? Three or four? No, I was there for 18 months because okay. like that's generally about the longest I can hold down any sort of normal job. Um, <laughs> so to future employers, uh, yes, it, it's true. Actually, I've been in my current role um, for about two years at a nonprofit called Street Code. Um, and the part of the reason I've been able to stay for two years is because one, uh, the, I get to work from home, right? So that's really helpful. And it's part-time. But with going back to... Um, Particle, I was there for 18 months. And the reason I left was because I got another shot at Mr. Waffleton. Somebody basically came along and said, I'll pay for the whole thing. It's a great idea. Um, and they fronted the money to put up to start the business. And so Mr. Waffleton's in the end did exist for about five months before we ran out of money. <laughs> and then, but it was a good five months and we got nothing but five star reviews. So shout out to Mr. Waffleton's. And you and your sister was helping with your social media. Yeah, my little sis, Alex, was helping my social. Shout out to her. Uh, um, mm-hmm. Imagine what would happen if Mr. Walfington's had been a huge huge success and you were about to scale and then COVID hit and you couldn't have any physical locations. That would have been interesting. Especially since we were a topping bar-based like um, operation where people could come and put on their own toppings, you know, like a, at a frozen yogurt shop, except we didn't charge extra for the toppings. They were all included. So there was no scale. Anyway, that was part of the charm, but I, you know how they say things work out for a reason or things happen for a reason. Like yeah. I, one of the best things that ever happened to me was that Mr. Waffleton's didn't work out because for two reasons, one, I, we had no idea COVID was coming. Um, and then two was that that is one of the hardest industries to ever be in, in terms of just physical, like, so much of that job is cleaning. So I'd be in the shop like 12 hours a day making waffles, but then also cleaning and then like making more waffles and cleaning. And then you have to clean up at the at the end of the night. It was so much work. It would have been, and it's so much um, like right now I'm working on a, a tech startup, you know, that exists just all online. Mm-hmm. And it's so much easier than a physical product and, you know, having a restaurant. So yeah, worked out well. Yeah. So, you know, I'm always working on something. If anybody knows me, like if I'm not working on some sort of side project, it means I'm miserable. Um, so the current thing that, so I, this is something we haven't even talked about yet, but I didn't understand how to manage money. Like I didn't understand personal finances till I was in my mid thirties. And then once I understood it, I was like, oh my gosh, there's so many people in my life who I would love to have this information so that they don't have to make the same mistakes I made and that they can retire one day and like they can have a good financial future. So I started doing pro bono financial coaching. Like I just coach people for free. Um, and it's been super rewarding. I've, uh, I've, I've had like probably 65 sessions, you know, at this point and I love it. But one thing I noticed was the thing that people struggle with is saving. Like most people have a really hard time saving. So just to cut to the chase of what the um, the startup does. So the startup is called Vacay, as in vacation. And the idea behind it is to help people build the habit of saving through saving for vacations. So that's like our mission mm-hmm. statement. Um, because people go on vacations regardless. I, every, like it doesn't, I've coached people who had a lot of money and coached people who had no money. They all go on vacations. It doesn't matter if people are broke or not. They're going to find a way to, to go relax and have a good time. So... Yeah. Um, if we could just get them to save for it in advance, then they can actually like, you know, have a 
really great time and not have to have the hangover of dealing with like, oh, I put a thousand dollars on my credit card, uh, you know, and I have to figure out how to pay that off and blah, blah, blah. So, so that acts as a teaching incentivizer that then scaffolds their money management skills. So yeah, it's like super, super simple from a user perspective, meaning like the, our mission is to help people build the habit of saving through saving for vacations. But as a user, all you know is that here's a way for you to save up for that vacation you want in, in nine months. You know, oh, I want to go to Spain. Okay, I know that's going to cost $1,200. Let me save up X number of dollars per month so that I can make sure I actually go on the strip. Because a lot yeah. of people just, they say they want to do it, but I, I never get around to it. But it's a different story if you have $1,200 sitting in an account just waiting for you to use it. So you're like, all right, we're actually going to do this thing. Um, so like I said, from a user perspective, it's just, it's really simple. And we're going to give you really good tools to help you um, budget for your vacation, you know, because how much does it cost to even go to Spain for a week? I don't know. Like, so, I mean, most people can kind of guess, but a lot of them get it wrong. So we're going to give you some better budgeting tools, but here's the real like crux of it and why it fits into the mission. Cause you might be saying, well, you're just going to blow the money on a vacation. So how is that, how's that helping people like build their savings over time? Well, you can save for your trip to Spain, but it's, we also make it super easy to start saving for your a trip to Coachella, or maybe that new wardrobe, or maybe, hey, even an emergency fund. I don't know, just for a rainy day, let's start putting some money aside over there. So once you kind of get in the habit of these this automatic withdrawal sort of system, yeah, it becomes really easy to just start doing saving for other things. So just going to help get you over that hump by helping you save for vacation. So that's, that's cool. AK. That's, that, I like that, man. And you, so you've always had like good perspective on being a financially literate, you said once to me, like a 15 minute conversation can save you 20 years of on your car insurance. No, that was Geico. Um, but just- <laughs> no, you did. You said 15 minute, like you can learn everything you need to know about being smart, financially literate in 15 minutes. I don't know. Did you say that? No, no, no. You're, you're totally right. I was just, uh, yeah. so there's two things. One, um, you, everything you need to know about money can fit on an index card. Um, and there's actually a book called the index card, which is one of my favorite personal finance books. Um, definitely check it out. It's very short. It's very simple. And, uh, yeah, it basically tells you much of what you need to know. The thing I told you was that the difference between, this is going to sound a little bit morbid, but just hang in there. The difference between dying broke and generational wealth is about an hour conversation. Like an hour long conversation can make the difference between someone dying broke and having generational wealth. It's not hard stuff. It's just that you need somebody to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. I remember you said that. And that's very interesting because like one of the things you do, which I think is really cool, is working to be an advocate for people of color to learn about like about this stuff. Because um, especially in the crypto space, it does it. It seems kind of, um, I don't know. That's that people that diversity isn't represented well. I don't know if that's a, that's a stereotype, and like, but like at educating people about blockchain too, right? Like you were talking about that. That's been kind of your mission as well. I did that. Yeah, I did. Um, so at Street Code, we launched something called a PNFT. It was a it stood for philanthropic NFT, and so the idea was that a a nonprofit launched this um, NFT. So any income revenue that came in was a tax write-off because it's all going to a nonprofit. Ah. So that's, yeah, that's a little different than a normal NFT NFT where you just buy it and, you know, you don't get any, it's, it's, you don't get any write-off for it. This is actually a donation in the form of an NFT. Um, So yeah, we did that. It was a a really cool 
like experience to kind of launch an NFT project, I now understand how much work goes into that because so much of it is just you need to have really good marketing around it, you know, um, and awareness and have a good mission. So, but yeah, it was, I would say like, we did fine. We didn't like make $10 million or anything like that, but we did fine. Um, we made $15,000 in 15 days. So <clears throat> I think that was one of our most successful fundraisers to date. Um, but I was a big advocate of teaching uh, like our community that we serve at Street Code about it because the problems that are solved are relative to the are related to the problems that you experience. And if you have a, like a, the same group of people solving problems, you're gonna come up with a lot of similar solutions. But if you bring in diversity into the problem solving space, you start getting like a, a, a abundance of solutions and solving problems for people who um, don't, solving problems for other groups of people, right? Like, so there are problems that I don't even know exist because I don't live in a certain country or I don't fit a certain demographic, but you want people from that space solving problems in that area to address the needs of the, of that demographic. So I think the more diversity you have in any space um, that requires innovation, the better. So you're talking about education and an hour can be the difference between dying broke or not, right? That like, because blockchain technology is still finding its footing and like there's the up and down with the market and everything that it makes it so people who are trying to just just get by financially like it makes it kind of off-putting even though it can be a liberating thing like what do you think are some of the barriers to adoption for you know what i'm saying oh i, I know exactly what you're saying it's very simple you need a really great use case that matters to people um so you know just buying and collecting these NFTs that don't really do anything, they don't, have, they don't have any utility, you know, that people see that and they go, I don't understand it. What What is the usefulness of this? Um, you need a killer app, so to speak. I think once it actually has a benefit in people's lives, then they will say, oh, well, then if this is a better solution than what I'm currently using, well, then I'll do this. You know, mm -hmm. assuming the barrier to entry isn't like the knowledge barrier isn't too high, but yeah, people just will gravitate what is towards what is like easier, faster, cheaper. So we need to yeah. like if blockchain wants or people in the crypto space want to gain adoption, you just need to start building stuff that has real utility. Sometimes that's missing in tech, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Oh yeah. Well, you know what I, I believe like so I just I I do not believe it's possible for me to be taken advantage of. Like so I'm super generous because I just believe that if you put generosity out into the world, you know, I believe in abundance basically. So I don't worry too much about me and like, am I gonna benefit from this? You know, that's why I do pro bono financial coaching. I'm not trying to like make money off of it. Um, I just wanna help people because I, I, I kind of wanna live my life like an experiment that says, if you just help people, can that have some sort of return? without you trying to force it. And if you look at my life, it's like a testament to that. I mean, I, I have never taken a job like that I absolutely hated and kept, you know, because just because of money or I've never like done, tried to wrong people because of money. Like, you know, I gotta be, like be stingy and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm totally fine. Like financially, I'm, I pay all my bills. Like I don't have, I'm not rich at all. But like, I don't stress a lot about money and I have a lot of free time, which is cool to work on things that I love. So, you know, yeah, I do believe it all kind of comes back to you. 
and and that's and that's why you've been curious about the technical utility elements of web3 and not not being so obsessed about the prices of things like you've taught me to kind of be chill let go what do you believe in and i think that that that's like a that like people can really get i think with covid people were really looking up their computers and their phones because we were all so isolated and um crypto had a huge boost because of that and maybe it wasn't because of covid but like it was so exciting to see the adoption happen and now during this potential bear market um the question is like what happens now the things that are useful really will we'll see if they have legs like for instance is juicy was there connections between web3 and iot I mean, the, the cool thing about IoT is like you can make a connection between that and just about like anything. Um, but I like there was a um, it was IATA was a token related to IoT, and I can't remember what it what the utility of it was. I'm sure it actually had some utility, but um, it did not it did not do well. Now, because because it, as you recall, and this kind of is the same for businesses too, in a, in a way, it's not just about the utility; it is also about the, uh, the marketing behind it or like the awareness and the community mm. Uh, mm. behind it. So if you can, if you can grow a community behind your token that has utility, I think that's, that's what I would look for. If I were looking for tokens or companies to invest in, um, I would look for something that has a really strong utility and a really strong community and then just buy it and hold it because forget what the market says on a day to day. It's like extremely volatile. But if I believe in the project, and I love the community. Your boy, Sean Fanning, the helium, you know, the helium project, right? Let me just say for the record, I love Sean that I can't claim that he is my my boy. Like <laughs> if we saw each other, we'd give each other a hug. But yeah, Sean was super great, dude, uh, super great to me. I got to work um, with him for about two years. Yeah, so love Sean. Sean, if you hear this, hey, man. Um, but yes, keep, what? tell me about helium. You, you introduced me to Sean and that was the highlight talking to him about his life and his house in San Francisco. That was really fun. Um, I don't even see Sean. Something that I'm just thinking about Sean is he was always like ahead of where everyone was. Um, he, I mean, I'm sure he still is. He was so far ahead. Like I even having a normal conversation with Sean, I would like have trouble understanding and keeping up with what he was talking about. Like he's one of the few legit geniuses I've ever met in my life. Like I'm like, Oh, he's on another level. So but no, but it's interesting. The father of like giving our generation this this Gutenberg press ideation of decentralized media, right? Because like Napster was this idea of the peer to peer sharing in a way that kind of I think forged us to think about Bitcoin and think about our weave and our drive. And when I explain our weave and our drive, I try I always use the Napster model. So it's interesting just tr- drawing these connections between the people we've met in our life who have integrated with music and tech and making the world tighter <laughs> you feel me yeah and when i oh i meant i said i worked in sean fanning's uh studio it, it was his recording studio just to be clear because sean fanning is a huge fan of music and um yeah so we got to like jam in his house and stuff so pretty cool what are some of your earliest memories of using the internet and using computers to communicate to a broader world yeah my earliest memories of using a computer were the apple 2c plus and playing uh the Jungle Book game on floppy disk. And then I remember my dad got a like a, a very expensive at the time computer. I think it cost like $3,000 or something. Ooh. And um, so, you know, so Apple 2C Plus was when I lived in Houston. 
Um, yeah, no, the $3,000 computer, I was also in Houston. So that means I was, um, like probably seven or eight years old. Uh, so I'm pretty fortunate that I got to be, have a computer in my house at such a young age. And I, I no doubt that had some effect on me. Um, but my dad had this like flying game. Uh, it was Microsoft, you know, flight simulator. And I would play that a lot. And then, um, when I got to San Antonio, in fourth grade, we learned um, there was a program called Logic, I think it was, where it had this like little turtle that you could draw, you'd program, and you would draw things with this little turtle. Um, so that I got some exposure there. Now, the internet really happened. I remember when we got internet in our house, I want to say that was like, um, oh, yeah, 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 we had a dial up modem. And uh, I remember the sounds, you know, again, my dad like had this, and um, it was Yah. He had um, Yahoo, you know, uh, he didn't have Yahoo, but like we would go to Yahoo and check, you know, there was the, what did you call those pages? It was just like a page, like a directory. Yeah, like a, a, yeah, directory, right. Yeah. So (laughs) now your internet experience goes even deeper than mine, like, because you were really into um, like the, you were communicating with people. I was looking up information, but you were actually communicating with people at a very early age of the internet. Uh, through what kind of stuff were you using? That's true. Yeah, I'd go on Prodigy and yes, and I'd I'd trade like underground tapes um, in a nonprofit way, and finding this whole network of people who were like media enthusiasts, archivists who wanted to like document document weird things, weird weird record like found collages, and that was kind of my inroad into rap because like people would put stuff at the end of the mixtape that 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 um was just weird and so it was like interesting that peer-to-peer file sharing like the whole i don't know like the tape trading network is kind of like an analog precursor to blockchain in a way right because it's all these people sharing creating these networks um which is kind of yeah you know what i mean it's a good way to not lose stuff so like as long as someone had a copy of it you know like it wouldn't be lost forever right and it the more copies proliferated the more likely it was to sustain the test of time um yeah and and i found uh, it was so funny man because like one of the tapes uh i i would like put like weird sounds between like the different pieces i found it on youtube and it was like a fourth generation copy of my copy because I knew because the weird sounds I'd put on there were the ones I knew I recorded like with my little mic on my little stereo that I sent someone in Chicago. So um, the reason I asked this is because it's just like interesting how our generation, like the, the older millennials, had this sort of ability to see what the world was like before all of the intense connection and and online, you know, like metaverse precursor and then what it's like now and so it's kind of interesting that like we are like the older jedi who have this perspective on what it's like to be offline so my question for you dj is how do you disconnect like i know we're talking now after work and you've been nice enough to make time to talk on zoom like do you how do you disconnect from technology or do you like and how do you yeah how do you find that spiritual balance then yeah no literally every sunday i make myself stop working so um i don't I can't work on any of my projects unless it's a project that helps someone. Um, so if I have to do a financial coaching session, I can do that on a Sunday, but I'm not going to work on my, you know, vacay my startup um, on a Sunday. Uh, it feels weird calling it my startup. Let me just back up a second. 
I have an amazing team of people that I work with. Like these are people that I, you know, I put out an ad and they like the vision and they've come on board to help. And I like, I owe so much of any success that we have to these incredible, incredibly smart people that for some reason have decided to like work with me on this. And so I, it's not my startup. It's like, our startup um but 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 you 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 it's your idea it was your idea right or it was it was my idea and it has been made so much better <laughs> than my original idea um because of the wonderful people around me so i just always want to give credit where credit is you know that that's one cool thing so we're going to talk i didn't forget about your question about disconnecting but this is right. just something i learned as a uh, as a founder is like um nobody's good at everything right so the best thing i could possibly do is quickly identify my strengths and weaknesses and then play to my strengths and hire work with people who can backfill my weaknesses right so um i have the reason i work with 12 people it's not 12 full-time hires it's 12 expert contractors who do very specific things in very specific areas and it's like that's what they do so anytime something needs to get done if it's in their area they just knock it out right um and then me, I get my job really is and my strength is like taking care of people. And so I look at my team as my I say that with, um, you know, uh, uh, it's my team and that they are my responsibility. Like I have to take care of them. Where can the um, audio, the listeners learn more about VK? Oh, yeah, we are www.vkhq.com. So you can see our little like demo landing page that we have up. Yeah, we, it's uh, we're pre-funding and all that stuff. So we're like in the validation stage. We're trying to make sure we're building something people actually want. And then we're going to go try and get some funding and see if we can keep this thing going for a while. But um, it's the thing that I, the thing that's cool about doing what you love. And I didn't forget about your disconnect question. We're going to come back to that. <laughs> but the thing that's cool about doing what you love is it's not about the destination. Like I love every bit of this journey. Like the meetings that we have every day, the like getting on Slack and responding to people and keeping the momentum going, the taking care of the team. So one day I hope we like are able to exit in some way for a, enough money so that we can all do what we want to do. But um, in the meantime, like I'm having a blast. And so no, even if it fails, it's not a failure to me because I enjoyed the journey. So um, I just wanted to put that out there as well. And so that way, so that means that disconnecting is not a necessary escape from it. Yeah. So the reason I disconnected is because, like, I don't want to burn out on yeah. any of these things. And I have a tendency to just, like, work a lot because, um, I, you know, I like, I like working on stuff. I like what I'm doing. So I think that's – it's not that I just like working, period. It's because I have – um, very specifically chosen what I'm working on and I happen to like all these things. Um, so on Sunday, I make sure I stop working and I can only like either help people or uh, I can watch movies. And it's really hard actually, because I, I like want to do research on some specific topic and I go, no, that's related to the business. I can't research that. And I just try to make myself take naps. And so but it's, it is a really relaxing day. And then when you get back onto Monday, you know, you're feeling a little bit more re-energized. So. And that's how people burn out. And that's like, we played so many shows on the road together. Like we made so many songs. The only way to do that was to take breaks, right? We had these intense months of touring when you could like, when you were like between projects that, and so that's like with anything, like music is still one of my favorite passions in the world. But like, 
I, I don't want to be living in a van 10 months a year anymore. You know what I mean? Doing that, like you got to, you got to unplug a little bit. And I think as we enter the the latter part of our thirties, <laughs> it's like we have this wisdom where the meaning in life changes, but it's cool that we have all these moments we can archive and stories we can tell. And and like this podcast will live on the Permacast, which is hosted, it's a network hosted on our weave, which means people will be able to find it in hundreds of years when we're gone. You know? Let's talk about this actually, because something we haven't mentioned is I am a fanatic about um, storing things. Like I keep, so when, when Andrew and I were on tour, I like anytime I could, I took lots of pictures and I have, I never delete a picture. Um, I'm, I'm kind of like OCD about that. I just want to keep all my photos. It's because I have a pretty bad memory. Um, and so I don't ever want to lose any of these things. And as long as I can remember, I've always had like a hard drive that I'm storing things on and, and I've always worried about that. And, you know, I'm constantly trying to figure out how can I keep this stuff in existence for not just me, but for when my kids are around and like their kids. And, you know, and remember when we used to have to burn CDs? Um, and then the CDs won't, won't play. Some of them won't play anymore. The like paint flake, flakes off in the back and exactly. So you're telling me you're looking for a solution for permanent storage. I'm glad. <laughs> you like that transition? That, but it's honest though. It's like really true. Like, yeah, that's what's like, I feel like a project like our weave and our drive is perfect for someone like you who's an archivist. Like you were showing me your hard drive earlier and I was showing you the pricing calculator. Like that's super cool because media can fail. Our bodies will can fail, but our memories and our stories like live on forever. Hey, that could be our tagline. Being able to back that up back up all those photos privately or publicly is exciting right it's it's you don't have to it's one less thing to worry about it's like reaching that ability to unplug because you know your data is safe and 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 censorship resistant and and permanent it's tight man it's really tight it's it's very relieving in a way to know that you don't it's not something you have to be concerned about um you know whether my house is like you know whether something's going to happen to my hard drive and like now all those photos are lost forever like oh my gosh i mean you know andrew you have um tons and i think i have a lot of stuff like in terms of um things i've collected over the years and just you have more than probably anyone i know you are a true collector of both um digital and physical like memorabilia so you have a ton of pictures you have tons of like old tracks and stuff like that sometimes i'll email you i'll be like dj do you have that electric ghost song you're like got it you sent me a yeah link to like andrew's rare stuff that only you had because you downloaded you'd saved it from the studio and so you're like an archivist in, in by nature and like it's interesting, like a lot of the questions with digital storage, it's like, okay, if you own the copyright or it's your own music, it's okay to host and share. You know, we try to make sure people aren't sharing copywritten things because our drive and our weave is not for that. But if it's your own stuff, you know, ultimately, you're, you always said you have to be your own biggest fan with music, right? And you have to be your own archivist because no one else is going to be the um, steward of your data, steward of your stories. And so, yeah, man. It's cool that you have all that stuff saved and you've been very meticulous about it. like how many terabytes do you think you have of photos and videos? I'll tell you this. When I left college, I had, you know, this is years ago and um, I had like seven of those CD cases full of <laughs> like stuff that I had saved and, you know, um, and, and then 
a lot of it was music because I'm I love music. And remember at the time, like you couldn't just get music whenever you wanted music. You know, you had to like have the CD. This is before streaming, and then streaming came out, and I was like, oh, well, I guess I don't need all these CDs. And Allison has tried to make me throw away my CD so many times, but I'm like, no, 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 no. The 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 photo inserts. Like you can't get yeah. those on Spotify. The, the liner notes. You you were the first on Rhapsody. I remember you were like showing me how to log in. We were listening to Michael Jackson the summer before he passed away up at Tahoe, and like you were showing me Rhapsody. I was like, this is dope. This is this is the future. You were this was like oh nine man or yeah oh nine. Like you were on Rhapsody before years before Spotify was mass adopted. Yeah, I remember seeing Spotify for the first time in the UK. We were in somebody's like dorm room. And they were showing me Spotify. And I was like, wait, what is this? Wait, you downloaded all this stuff? Wait, you didn't download all this stuff? It's just it's just online? I don't understand. Yeah. And then like, it came to America, you know, a, a year or two later. <laughs> and I actually got to uh, meet, I, I should say I walked past several times, Daniel Eck. Um, he was in the studio in the, the one I worked at in um, San Francisco. And he was just, he had his laptop. This was probably like 2000 and. 15, 16, something like that. Mm -hmm. His laptop, he's just real quiet, working on what I can only assume. Uh, he's probably sending emails and stuff for Spotify. Well, and didn't you, did you produce the um, Panic is Perfect stuff with Sean Parker, that band he was managing? You worked on that stuff too. I, I did work on that, yes. And uh, those guys are great. And it's cool because I can go back and listen to the album, that, which is on Spotify, and hear all the little things that i remember from the studio like it'll bring us back to the memories but you know those guys are also studio pros themselves so they really did a lot of the they, they did a, a lot of the heavy lifting that was cool like i basically am good at teaching so i would teach people how to use the studio and then i would like sit down and just be available for help that was my that was my trick as an engineer i teach people how to use it because they wanted to do you know they wanted to use uh they want to be in there for like hours and do their own tweaking and stuff. Yeah, so I, yeah, te yeah. I just teach them and then just be available and order food because Sean Parker was the was super kind. <laughs> True story. Grubhub called us um, one day. The vice president of Grubhub called us and said, "Hi, uh, just wanted to like just wanted to say thank you. You are our number one customer <laughs> in all of San Francisco. The, <laughs> the studio ordered so much food. All it was great. So well, it's like." Was it? It's the, that like the Bible story of the loaves and fishes, right? Like I think we can end on this. Um, you taught me because we you were so patient with me with my vocals. Like I was like to be honest, like in 1998 or whatever when I started rapping, it was just the novelty of it. I didn't have a flow. I just had a lot of excitement. And you would when we started producing the stuff that was the laptop EP and everything like you would always make me redo takes but i would always be up for the challenge like you'd have me redo a line maybe for 20 minutes and you'd be like that's the take and that's like now when i do songs man i can i can record a song in 20 minutes because i'm always i have dj i have your like production ear and so i know when something's tight and when it's not and it's like i can do it myself because you taught me how to listen and how to be honest about my appraisal just like you've taught me a lot of stuff about business and being a good person and so you are a teacher and i think like you reflect the generosity and the hope that i feel like silicon valley and all the people in our stanford sphere like has potentially and how web3 can be this distillation maybe not like a, a solution to everything but it gives people back the power that and the hope that i feel like the world maybe had more of 20 years ago that you still have and it inspires me dude that's what i want to say oh thanks man yeah it's you know it's just all about um, we're here.
to help each other. We're all like a part of the same journey. And I, like, there's no reason to have a mindset of scarcity. Just, just, just be generous and watch what comes back to you. That's what I say. Watch what, so just like count your blessings as they return back to you. Yeah. Yeah, sure. that's kind of tight. That's kind of tight. Having an attitude of gratitude. I know that's like a cliche thing now. That was a lyric you liked from one of the. Yeah, it was. Uh, Gotta switch my attitude to gratitude. That was uh, Pigeon John. Was. Oh, that's from Pigeon John. Okay, okay. Pigeon John, you like what? Wait, and then um, what's the other one? Call Florence Powell. Powell. Call, I do. I do like Call Florence Powell. So there was self. There's a, a band from the 90s, I, Matt Mahaffey, still love him. Uh, Call Florence Powell was a band that he helped produce. And um, another band I just got to shout out uh, is, is Wallpaper. Um, so, you know, Ricky Reed and those guys. I love one of my favorite albums of all time is Wallpaper, uh, the, the first album, which is, I don't even want to say the, the name. It's a very, it's a, it's a <laughs> the name is Doodoo Face. Um, <laughs> Because it's that face you make when something's real funky, yeah. and they they had some funky uh, funky lines on there, some funky. And they, Ricky Reed did a lot of stuff with Lizzo, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Ricky Reed went on to be a very big success. Um, but I'll always love his old uh, wallpaper stuff. So we were on Warp Warp Tour 2013. We were on the same stage, and it was cool because we'd come. We both played that. Um, the BFD, that San Francisco festival at Shoreline and seeing him like you, you always had the ability to spot talent. Like that show we did with T-Pain when he was still kind of like breaking through. You're like in a year, he's going to be huge. And you were right. Like you always, you're able to see things before they get big. That's, that's a talent of yours, man. I don't know. Do you think you agree that you have like that producer ear? What is it? I've gotten really fortunate. You're right, because there's a lot of people I worked with that went on to like do great things, again, such as yourself, right? Like, um, and I don't know how it happens, but I, I it's like I look for a combination of of high quality person. I don't know. I don't I don't really like working with jerks, right? And you're not a jerk. Um, so I like working with good people. Thanks. And then I do, yeah, I'm pretty <laughs> particular about stuff that I like. So um I guess it, I guess I have an ear for that sort of thing. Although I, you know, who knows? But yeah, yeah. Well, you work with enough artists, right? Some of them, a few of them, are you open for enough bands? A few of them are bound to, <laughs> to be big, right? Well, D, uh, DJ, where can people get a hold of you or follow you? I know you're on Twitter. You have, but what do you, do you want to plug anything? Um, so, if you need help with financial coaching, let me. I'll tell you about that first and foremost. So, I have a nonprofit that I started. Uh, just a few months ago. So all this pro, pro bono financial coaching I've been doing, I decided to wrap it in a nonprofit so that I can start applying for grants and things like that um, to improve, you know, to expand the program and whatever. But that's what you up. can go. Yeah, thank you. Um, but the website URL is the AFE society.org and AFE stands for advancement of financial empowerment. So the AFE society.org, what it will do is it'll take you straight to my calendar um, and you can book time with me, which is, it's dangerous for me to put this out there, <laughs> but I trust that you all, you know, you won't uh, use it in a, in a bad way. Cause I do believe that uh, the more people I can help, the better. So yeah, if you want to book time with my calendar, I don't have to know you or anything. Just if you want to come and talk about some personal finance stuff, um, I'm here to Is that a nonprofit you started or that you collaborate with? No, I started it. It's my own nonprofit. And you're on Patreon. So if anyone wants to pl- to support, patreon.com slash the AFE Society, um, if you want to give back, if you want to shout that out. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
And so uh, the other place you'll see me a lot more these days, or in addition, is, of course, vkhq.com. I'm going to try and help some people go travel big, you know, budget better, travel bigger um, is our is our tagline. And we want people to go on more vacations, better vacations, bigger vacations, but also um, with less hassle and save money. And it's a it's a tall order. And it seems like impossible to do all those things. But I like tough challenges. And I do believe we can uh, we can help people in that way. Final question. Let's say someone went on one of these vacations or learned about financial literacy and they wanted to document it with photos, with text documents, with Excel spreadsheets. Do you think there'd be a way for them to permanently back that up in a decentralized way? What do you think though? Off the top of my head, um, the only (laughs) true solution that comes to mind is our drive. Hey, oh yeah, oh yeah. So interesting. I don't know if you've heard of them, but. (laughs) Oh, and then also you, if anyone wants to hear DJ's rap, there's a song called It's a Party Y'all on Spotify with the EP with K-Flay and DJ has a verse and that's a great verse with a lot of plays. So this, not only can he do all these other things, he also is a pretty good rapper. <laughs> Learned it from you, buddy. <laughs> um, well, thank you for listening uh, and support my man DJ. And DJ, this conversation has been great. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Andrew. Always a pleasure, my friend. Always a pleasure. Thank you, DJ. That was a very great conversation. It's always awesome catching up with you. And thank you for your time. Be sure to check out DJ's projects and follow him on Twitter at Demondrick. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of the RCast. Stay tuned for more info on RNS and ants. And if you don't know what that is, check out our social media because we're going to be talking about it a lot more coming up. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye.